My dear brothers and sisters, welcome to the University Forum. My name is John Linford, and I'm the Academic Vice President. We're so grateful to have, a, have Sister Sharon Eubank here. We extend a special welcome to her. She is the Director of Humanitarian Services and former Relief Society General Presidency First Counselor. We thank her for speaking to us today. I also acknowledge President and Sister Meredith and members of President's Executive Group who are seated on the stand. Special thanks goes out to the College of Education and Human Development for hosting this forum. We will open this forum with an invocation by Ella Davidson. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here today. We're grateful to be on this campus, surrounded by amazing people who love and care for us. We're so grateful for the opportunity to hear from Sister Sharon Eubank today. We're grateful for her coming and being here with us today. Please help us to have the spirit here with us and that we can have it impress upon us as she speaks and we are taught by her today. Please help us to act on any impressions that we have. We're so grateful for thee. We love thee and say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Ella. I congratulate each of you and applaud you for being at this forum. Attending forums such as this can be a very beneficial part of your education, and they're wonderful opportunities for you to broaden your educational experience while here at BYU-Idaho. It is now my privilege to introduce Sister Sharon Eubank. Born in Redding, California, Sharon Eubank is the daughter of Mark and Jean Eubank. She served as a full-time missionary for the church in the Finland Helsinki Mission and received a bachelor's degree in English from Brigham Young University. Early in her career, she taught English as a second language in Japan, worked as a legislative aide in the U.S. Senate, and owned a retail education store in Provo, Utah. Since 1998, Sharon has been employed by the church's Welfare Self-Reliance Department. In 2011, she was named the director of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints humanitarian work worldwide. From 2017 and to, to 2022, she served as first counselor to President Gene B. Bingham in the General, General Relief Society presidency. Today, she continues as the director of humanitarian services, which has expanded to include the Perpetual Education Fund and Just Serve. Please be aware that the forum will end around 12.30, following which we will break for a few minutes, and then there will be a question and answer session for those who would like to stay. Sister Eubank. Thank you so much for inviting me to come to BYU-Idaho. I love this venue and I really love you and it's uh, fun to interact and mingle with you, and I, I hope we'll have a good discussion here today. Uh, as was mentioned, it's been almost 40 years ago that I was an English teacher in Japan, and the town where I lived was the birthplace of Honda. It's where it was first established, so it was full of manufacturing, and it didn't have a lot of green space, and there was tons of traffic. But on the weekends, my students would invite me to go to different places, and one of the the favorite places that they had to take me was to the Tsubaki Grand Shrine. And it's high up in the mountains. It has all these beautiful trees, and it's cool and, and beautiful. So this is a 
photograph of me there. Please don't judge or make fun of the 80s wardrobe choices. <laughs> The legend says that the shrine was established around 3 BC, so these trees are 2,000 years old. And it's known for its, its as they call it a power spot, one of the few places on the earth uh, where these divine powers can be felt by human beings. And maybe you've experienced this. If you've been out in nature yourself in the middle of old growth, the way I was in that shrine, you soak up kind of a deep, calm peace, and it's spiritual. It's a spiritual feeling. And I was experiencing in that shrine and in other places the sacred life of trees. So a friend of mine from Oxford University in English sent me a book. The author is named Peter Volleben, and this book had just been translated from German into English, and it was entitled The Hidden Life of Trees, Discoveries from a Secret World. So Volleban worked for the Forestry Commission in Germany for 20 years, and he spent a lot of time out in old-growth forests. And he writes about the surprising ways that trees communicate, and he talks about the way they feel. He says when we walk around a forest, we, you know, we look at an individual tree that's standing alone out there without realizing that underneath the ground, all these species in the forest are interconnected by their root system. And he calls forests superorganisms because the trees are interconnected and it helps the whole forest thrive in similar ways to ant colonies and, and other kinds of things in nature. So I'm going to read what he writes and think about this in terms of, of human terms while you listen. So this is Volaman. Why are trees such social beings? Why do they share food with their own species and sometimes even go as far as to nourish their competitors? The reasons are the same as for human communities. There are advantages in working together. A tree is not a forest. On its own, it can't establish a consistent local climate. It's at the mercy of the wind and the weather. But together, many trees create an ecosystem that moderates the cold and stores a great deal of water and generates a lot of humidity. And in the protected environment, trees can live to be very old. To get to the point, the community must remain intact no matter what. If every tree were looking out only for itself, then quite a few of them would never reach old age. Regular fatalities would result in large gaps in the tree canopy, which would make a lot easier for storms to get inside the forest and uproot more trees. The heat of the summer would reach to the forest floor and dry it out. Every tree would suffer. Every tree, therefore, is valuable to the community and worth keeping around for as long as possible. And that's why even sick individuals are supported and nourished until they recover. Because next time, perhaps it will be the other way around and the supporting tree might be the one in need of assistance. I know about the long tradition uh, at BYU-Idaho about acorns that grow into these mighty oaks. And I know you already know the story about Jacob Sporey. But in 1888 to 1891, he was the first principal of the Bannock Stake Academy, and that became Rick's College, and then that became BYU-Idaho. And you probably know that academy struggled financially in those early days. In one of the years, Jacob applied his salary to the debt of the school, and then he took a job at the railroad, a second job, and he used his railroad salary to pay the teachers. Think about the sacrifice. He, he had this unconquerable vision for the school and for the students to attend. 
So we all know his famous quote. He said, the seeds we are planting today will become mighty oaks and their branches will run all over the earth. Well, you're those branches. President Eyring called Jacob Sporey's statement prophetic. So <clears throat> he says, the trees traditionally are a symbol of longevity and deep-rooted integrity. And this has been adopted as the symbol for Ricks College. The symbol was chosen because of its link with the history of the school. In 1890, Jacob Sporey, who was the first principal, uh, made a prophecy, he calls it a prophecy, that the academy would grow from an acorn into a towering oak whose branches would reach around the world. So your being on campus today is part of the fulfillment of Jacob Sporey's vision and, and other prophets, seers, and revelators. And maybe you look at those four oak trees that were planted on the south side of the Sporey building. They're not very old, but they're growing. It takes a lot of faith and vision and, I don't know, maybe a second job and refusing to give up when things look disastrous and bleak. But they're going to be nurtured along. Mighty oaks, they are not going to just spring up overnight. Let me read a condensed version of Alma 32. And while I do it, Will you imagine that you are literally planting a tree inside you with your faith? You're going to grow a tree of life inside you spiritually. Alma says, now we will compare the world unto a seed. If it be a true seed planted in your heart, and if you do not cast it out by your unbelief, it will begin to swell within your breasts. And when you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say in yourself, the word is good for it begins to enlarge my soul, enlighten my understanding, and be delicious to me. And as the tree begins to grow, you will say, let us nourish it with great care, that it might get root, that it might grow up and bring forth fruit unto us. But if you neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. And when the heat of the sun cometh and scorches it, because it has no root, it withers away, and you pluck it up and cast it out. It is because that your ground is barren and you will not nourish the tree. But if ye will nourish the tree, the word, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life. And because of your diligence, faith, your patience with the word in nourishing it, that it may take root in you, behold, by and by, ye shall pluck the precious sweet white fruit until ye are filled. And then ye shall reap the rewards of your faith. That's a long passage of scripture, but it's so critical to what we're thinking about in the, in the terms of studying here at the university, of learning to grow into those kind of oaks. Let me show you this picture. This is the Pechanga Great Oak Tree. It's 2,000 years old, and it grows near Temecula, California on Pechanga native land. So the local Pechanga, for them, this tree has a lot of spiritual meaning. It's about connectedness, it's about generations. And as old as that tree is, it produces acorns every three or four years. And they don't want to let those acorns just fall on the ground. So the staff pick it up, and the young Changa people pick it up, and they collect those acorns, and they plant them in pots. And once that they grow large enough, then they plant them in different places around the Pechanga Nation. These oak generations link together under the ground, and it makes that interdependent network that Volenbuck talked about, the microclimate, so that they can all thrive for thousands of years. So I just want to take a little bit of time and share with you three additional lessons that I learned from Volenbuck's research on this hidden life of trees. The first one is, trees have friends. 
Bolivan writes, the average tree grows its branches out until it encounters the branch tips of a neighboring tree of the same height. And then it doesn't grow any wider because it senses that the air and better light in this space is already taken. Some trees growing near each other are careful right from the outset not to grow overly thick branches in each other's directions. They don't want to take away anything from each other, so they develop sturdy branches on the outward edges that's in the direction of their non-friends. Such partners are often so tightly connected in their roots that they sometimes even die together. We don't think about trees in this kind of a way and trees having friends, but tree friendship extends even if one of the trees is cut down. So under the ground, the still living trees funnel sugar and nutrients to that stump and they keep it alive for decades. I think that's so interesting. How could this apply to people? I saw this great example just two weeks ago. This photograph is Connor Mance in the blue and Clayton Young in the red. And they've been friends for a long time. They're training partners and they're former BYU Provo runners. They're also uh, returned Latter-day Saint missionaries. Two weeks ago, February 3rd, up in Orlando, Florida, these two secured the two guaranteed spots for the Olympic team that's going to Paris, France. So Mance was favored to win. Everyone thought he would place in the top three, but the commentators were very skeptical and a little bit brutal about Young. They just, they didn't think he was going to do as well. In the race, these two friends ran with each other the whole time, and around mile 24, Mance just hits a wall. He doesn't feel well, and he doesn't think he can finish. And his training buddy, Clayton Young, saw what was happening, and he said, look, just fall behind me. Just pretend like we're in training. Just follow me, and I'll get you there. And they ran the last two miles that way. And when they got to the ribbon, you can hear the commentators on TV saying, that now we're going to see their competitive spirit. They're going to jockey now, and we'll see which of the two of them has the greater competitive spirit to surge forward and win. But what they couldn't see was that Clayton said to Connor, you go ahead, this is yours. And Mance, after drafting behind Young for those last miles, crossed the finish line first. And Young came in second, and then together they made the Olympic team. That spirit of generosity and of recognizing that the long win is more important than the short win, and the absolute assurance that we're in this together and your success is my success, boy, I love that. That's the finest spirit of tree friendship or human friendship that I can think about. So it's a great example. The second lesson from trees is that forests constantly regenerate. They never stay the same. And, and change is just part of their process. And to grow, we have to be not afraid that old things are going to fall away and that new things are going to come in their places. And some years, a tree is going to have a big, fat ring because they did a lot of growing, that the circumstances were just right. And other times, they won't have a great year. They'll have a thin ring. But all along, they keep gaining in experience and wisdom. Everybody here is too young to remember Sister Dewan Young. She was the general primary president from 1980 to 1988. Sharing time was one of the things that her presidency started in their administration. But what do you think happened to Sister Young after 1988 when her general service was over? And you might be tempted to think, well, her general calling years, those were big, fat tree rings in her life. And now that Sister Young is 92, 
Maybe her rings are a little bit thinner and her life is becoming a little bit narrower. But last week, KSL News, I saw this photograph. And I looked at that, is that Dewan Young? Sister Young just made the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest female water skier on record. You have to think what it means to her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren. They don't remember when she was the general primary president, but they remember being out on the lake with her as she's slalom skiing out on Bear Lake. And she's making memories with them, and she's the messenger. They don't be afraid to grow and do new things, do other good things. I love that. I'm putting this in my office. The third lesson is, I mentioned earlier about how all the trees contributed to the microclimate that helps protect the whole forest, and all the trees thrive. And as human beings, we live in proximity to other human beings. And if we want to, we can make microclimates that help everybody in our little microclimate grow straighter. Let me share a story about David Parker and Sean Marchant. They came to my office and we recorded these little clips. So here's the introduction. Hi. Sorry, it wasn't quite that short. <laughs> Let me try again. Hi, my name is David Parker. I am a student. And my name is Sean Martin, I'm a friend of Dave's. So much How's more that? than that. I think it's, I feel like there's so much more than that. Like there's so many more people. But yes, and we're friends. Hi, nice to meet you, everyone. <laughs> David worked in the Hollywood film industry, and he even won an Academy Award. But he had a very nasty drug habit, and it caused a lot of chaos in his personal life and in his health. And there was a certain moment when he was uh, assigned to go to Utah to work on a project for BYU TV, and out of curiosity. He wanted to meet a member of the church, and he didn't find anybody in the clubs and the bars where he was spending his evenings. Probably a good thing. <laughs> but he had a moment of crisis while he was there, and he said, I just hit emotional rock bottom. My life was creating so much chaos. And a, an acquaintance of his went out to her car and got a Book of Mormon and gave it to him. And he became obsessed with the story. So after reading First Nephi, he asked her, can you tell me more about the context? I have all these questions. And she said, look, you need to meet with the missionaries. Dave, I see you're excited, but I'm not really the person that, that could to tell you all this. Well, then tell me who could tell me this. And she says, we have these people called missionaries. I'm like, well, where are they? And she says, well, you've probably seen them. I'm like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. It took me two weeks just to find a Mormon in Utah. Obviously, <laughs> I cannot find a missionary, right? I'm like, well, can you describe it to me? She's describing, and this is where this whole divine thing here, she's describing the missionaries where they're young men, women, they're usually riding around on bicycles with a tie on, and just then, two missionaries go riding by the front of my door. And so, instinctively, I say, hold on, and I go running out the door. I was enjoying what they were teaching me so much, and I know like most people will have like a lesson, I guess like maybe if you're lucky once or twice a week. I had these fools over my house every single day. I'm like, you gotta, you know, tell me more about it, and I would make them lunch every single day, and I, I consider myself a little bit of a, you know, a cook. I'd say a short order yeah. cook at, at best. 
you know, and I would cook them up something every day or we'd go get sandwiches. So I had a very accelerated um, introduction and then edification around the Book of Mormon, getting myself ready. Boy, you can feel his spirit. <laughs> it wasn't an easy road. After David's baptism, uh, he had a new circle of friends and they were helping him as he battled his addictions and he looked for a job and he was creating a new environment for his life. But the Spirit of the Lord started moving inside him. And as a new member of the church, he began reaching out to help other people that were in crisis. So he has this newfound peace. He cares about everybody, but he especially cares about people who are living on the edge. Now, Sean, sitting next to him, was his stake president, but he was his friend. And they worked together to reach out to help people that have specific needs. If coming back to Utah, if not just to do my mission and participate in the church, it would be to see these people and be near them until I die. Because you know what? This is what the church was designed originally to be. It's us helping each other to move forward. Just so that person that you help move forward can then in turn help someone else. I want you to hear a clip of Sean Marchant talking about another person that they helped together. It's a little bit long, but listen to the story that they're telling together and how they interact with each other. Well, I was actually on a young men's camp. I was stake president, but it was my ward. Mm -hmm. The young men were on a, river, uh, a uh, kayaking trip at the Weaver River. And all of a sudden I received this phone call at the end of one of these runs and it's Dave and he says, Sean, I've got one, you gotta come <laughs> quick. And so I hurry, I get in the car, you know, it's a good 30, 40 minutes away. <laughs> so I drive down and he's sitting there talking with this young woman. And she shares with me this story of what had happened. And Dave is talking with her, consoling her, just, you know, letting her all just wait, you know, Sean's coming, we'll talk it through. And what had happened is when they got into that parking lot, the boyfriend just takes off. And so now she's alone, she has this car and we said, I just don't know what to do. No, no, she left the car. Oh, I know, I know, I'll get to that in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, after hearing her story, I knew exactly you know, what, what she should do. I didn't know if she would, but uh, I work a lot with the Other Side Academy that I'm sure you're familiar with. And I let her know, I think this is the place for you to go. Now you have to commit to being there for you know, a minimum of two years, but if you do, it will change your life because she'd been homeless for two or three years. I said, what do you have to lose? You know, and she said, you're right. And it gave me such a great appreciation for the missionary, for people who were willing to change their life at a moment's notice to two complete strangers. Because here it is, Dave and I are telling her, if you just give it all up, you go to the other side of Academy, it will change your life. And she only hesitated for a moment. And then she said, let's do it. Yep. We walked out <clears throat> and, and Dave says, well, what about your car? She says, well, I won't need it. So she just left it. And what about your boyfriend? Well, he's part of the problem. So I guess we'll just go. So anyways, we go down to the other side of Academy and drop her off the bench and I talk to Dave and introduce her to him and they interview her and, and uh, they approved her to come in and you know, she had to leave her backpack. And she said, you know, Sean, Dave, can, can you just go? Here's my, ad my parents' address. Will you just go there and let them know where I am since I won't be able to call them. So we drop her off and uh, Dave and I head over to her parents' house. And this is a whole nother part of the story. Um, and honestly, I, when we first showed up, I actually thought maybe it was the wrong address. 
because in the big window out front it says La Iglesia de Dios. And we ring the doorbell and this woman comes to the door and uh, fortunately I speak Spanish. And I asked if, if this was her mother and she said yes. And we were able to tell her what had just happened and she broke down crying. And she I said, think we cried a little bit too. I'm sure we yeah, did. we did cry too. Anyway, Christians. she invited us in, <laughs> and she said, "We have been praying for years for God to send angels to help our daughter, and He's finally done it." And uh, this young woman, her father is the pastor of La Iglesia de Dios. Anyways, as Dave normally does, he gives them a Book of Mormon, and <laughs> we actually share with them the story of Alma <laughs> and how Alma's father prayed. And to me, there are three amazing people in this story. There's one, Dave, who is praying to find people, for God to send him people to help. There's this young woman who, at the invitation of two complete strangers, gives up everything to change her life. And then there's this mother who's been praying for years for her daughter and her prayers are answered. You can feel their personalities. You can feel their friendship and how all the people around Dave and his you know, his, his enthusiasm for the church. They're creating an ecosystem that can help, David calls them unusual Christians, like him. And then they can grow in a new and a straight way. So let's just watch this final clip. Has been able to reach a lot of people that someone like me wouldn't be able to. He would do these Facebook videos <laughs> regularly yeah, where yeah. hundreds of people would watch um, his little Facebook firesides and yeah, yeah. had a lot of influence there in the ward and in the community. Well, because I was I was interviewing the unusual. Yeah. You know, there is I because I, the, the, the idea came about is that I watched a lot of church um, video and things like that. And it's always very much you know, the people I, you know, I was born a Christian and, you know, this is how I was raised to believe and then this is how it's propagating in my life towards other, which is which are beautiful stories. I absolutely refuse to watch any videos that the missionaries or he sends me while I'm in school because I usually break down crying. So I save them until I get home. They're all these wonderful stories, but I always thought that there was like a, a an area that was so untapped of the unusual Christian that's not expressed as much. So we started doing these interviews with the unusual Christians, you know, people that have had torrid, you know, backgrounds that have came to, you know, Christ and have now found these new lives. So that's kind of where we got our following from. I hope you enjoy just getting to know David and Sean and seeing how their relationship works. If you notice, David's wearing a Harvard sweatshirt because as a 54-year-old man, he's been accepted to Harvard Medical School. He got a full scholarship there. So after years of being homeless and being a drug addicted and the Church of Jesus Christ has completely changed his life and he's using his, his new life to change other people's lives. I want to talk about a scripture that moves me more than any other. In the New Testament, Jesus, the, the story is told, Jesus stands up in his home synagogue of Nazareth, and he's going to officially begin his ministry. And he does it by standing up to read and quoting a passage from Isaiah 61. So you have to think, as the great Jehovah, he's the one who gave those words to Isaiah. And now he's reading them from the scroll, but he's there in the flesh to fulfill them. 
And he begins with a description of his mission. And it's also our mission because we follow him as his disciples. This is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of the vengeance of our God, and to comfort all that mourn. So he begins by saying, this is why I've come. In the next verse, I want you to notice the strong temple symbolism. He's using it to describe what he calls trees of righteousness. But Jesus Christ constantly regenerates the forest and he's clearing away the bad so that the good can grow. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And then the final verse holds this invitation that I believe is for us. It's for humanitarians. It's for ministers. And you can take this as your personal pledge. And they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the waste cities and the desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. People shall call you the ministers of our God. In my view, the greatest crisis of our time is one of connection and respect for people who might be very different from us. What I just learned about forests is not just that they have a hidden life that's out of view, it's a sacred life of interconnection. And there are vivid spiritual parallels in that forest story for you and me. Because as Jesus declared in Isaiah, we have the power of our covenants. We're ministers of God. We're trees of righteousness. Humanitarian service sounds big. It sounds time-consuming. It sounds expensive. Ministering, sometimes maybe you feel a little guilt-inducing, or maybe it's awkward. And if you hear about building up old waste places, it sounds like that's something that's bigger than just one person can do. But what if it's not? What if you can be a humanitarian or a minister or part of an interconnected forest by doing the things that you're already doing every day? How can small acts of service build up a community like those forests that we read about? How can we improve the microclimate so that everybody's doing better than they were before, the way David Parker is doing? How do we push resources through our root system to the trees that are struggling? How do we learn from the success of the oldest trees about survival, the way Dwan Young is doing? We dream as people about doing something big with our lives, something that prevents suffering, that really helps people. But our lives are busy, and we have lots of responsibilities and constraints. So do we just, are we just going to give up? Are we just going to say, I'm going to leave that to the church or to wealthy philanthropists like Melinda Gates or Mr. Beast? Or are there simple things in the ecosystem that every one of us can do? So last night, I wrote down 30 things that I think anybody could do that would make a difference in the ecosystem. And they're going to take curiosity. They're going to take a little bit of energy. But they don't take very much more. 
and they're more powerful than you can imagine. If you picture that connecting the root system that would grow among us, if everybody that's watching this, everybody in this room, if you just did one thing on the list every day for a month, pick one thing and do something every day for 30 days, do you know what would happen to the forest around all of us that would thrive? So you can start today. You can start wherever you are at home or on campus or with your neighbors or whatever you're doing. But let me just show you my 30 and you can add your own. Number one, invite someone who has another faith or another viewpoint to do something socially with you. Number two, resolve a conflict in your life. That comes from President Nelson. Make everyday life accessible for other people. What do they miss? How come they're not participating? What do they want? What do they need? Be funny and be kind. Fast. Give a generous fast offering. When you don't eat for 24 hours so that somebody else can eat, I think that's an elegant solution. Anybody can try that. Improve your skills at preserving food so you can eat something out of season. Or set aside a little bit of non-perishable food whenever possible so you can build up a reserve. Plan Relief Society or Elders Quorum activities for new parents that are practical so that they can be educational and supportive. Put your phone away. Interact with people by looking in their eyes. Go out on Just Serve and choose a project or post a project on Just Serve. Get people to work with you. Prepare healthy snacks and share them with friends. Help kids read aloud. Nothing improves kids' skills better than reading aloud with an adult who cares about them. Give books as a gift. Share why you specifically chose that book for that person. Surprise people with your talents. Start a recipe sharing group for people and find new ways to prepare and love vegetables. Will you please invite me to that group? <laughs> find other incentives that aren't sugary treats for primary, for soccer practice, for family home evening, for after school snacks. Find a chance to focus on cooperation instead of competition the way Young and Mance did. Totally ripped off President Nel uh, Monson. Don't ever let a problem to be solved be more important than a person to be loved. And research the specific reasons that hunger might be on the rise in Rexburg. What do you want to do about that? Volunteer to redo a school class. Help a child with homework after school. Share music with someone you love or listen to their favorite music. Cook with kids. Let them make the decisions about how their meals are prepared. Plant a garden. Share the produce. Choose healthier food for yourself. See if a walk in nature will lift your spirits and then take somebody with you. Ensure that there are private places in the supportive environment at church and on campus and different places for mothers to breastfeed or pump. Support a lending library and other good resources where people can find good books. Work with your local government to make sure that Rexburg's air and food and other resources are free from contaminants. Grow something from a seed. These aren't hard things to do, but I promise you they'll make a difference in the way that we connect with each other. 
and I hope that you'll accept the invitation to do them. I'll post these on social media, and you can figure out what you want to do, but I hope you'll do something. I'm occasionally asked, why doesn't the church spend more money on humanitarian work? Why don't we stop building expensive temples and focus the resources on relieving poor people? That's a legitimate question to ask the Church of Jesus Christ. But is it money that solves society's ills? The world has poured $2 trillion into addressing chronic issues in Africa. Why isn't the situation any better? The reason is because money isn't the real issue. Lasting progress comes through trusted relationships, through infrastructure, reducing corruption, and the ability of people to work together. And money doesn't necessarily create those things. They have to be developed alongside the money and the resource. And frankly, it's a lot harder work. I will never discount the one thing that this church does that lifts entire communities in rapid development because it invites men and women of all social classes and all backgrounds to enter into a sacred building and make the most binding, imp important promises of their mortal lives. In those buildings, they promise not to steal or lie. They promise to be faithful to their spouse and their children. They vow that they'll seek the interest of their neighbor and be peacemakers and become devoted to that idea that we're all one family. We're all valued and alike unto God. And if those promises made in holy temples are kept, it transforms society faster than any aid, any development project ever could. The greatest charitable development project on the planet is for people themselves to bind themselves to God and mean it. So thank goodness that the church builds 335 temples and counting. It's the greatest poverty alleviation system in the world. The most important thing that you can do as a humanitarian is to keep your covenants with God. And the second most important thing you can do is to connect in goodness with the people around you. I hope you felt the spirit. I hope you've figured out something that's meaningful to you today. Don't walk out of this forum without knowing that I testify the power of keeping covenants with the Savior Jesus Christ. He is the redeemer of the world. He's the vine and we're the branches and he overcomes every single thing that blocks our progress. And I testify you will find the progress that you seek in your life and in the life of the people around you if you keep your covenants and seek the Holy Ghost. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Sister Eubank, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your talents, your testimony with us. Uh, what an inspiring and timely message for us all. And thank you all for joining us today as well and spending this hour with us. The question and answer session will begin shortly. We'll allow a few minutes, so those of you who do need to get off to a class may do so. We ask any that are staying for the question and answer session, if you could, to move forward. And then if you have questions for Sister Eubank, uh, we'll uh, have you come up to one of the microphones. Again, we'll begin in a few moments. Thank you all so very much.
Well, very good. We're going to begin the question and answer portion of our meeting today. Thank you for sticking around and joining us for this segment. Um, as you can see, we do have a couple of microphones uh, in the aisles. The spotlights are on those. We invite you to come forward and, and you can form a line if needed. And uh, Sister Eubank graciously has agreed to take some of your questions. So we'll turn the time over to her now. Thank you. This is the fun part. I'm eager to hear what you want to talk about. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, so you talked a little bit about self-reliance and food storage and things like that. And I know living on campus and being a college student, it can be kind of hard to do that. So do you have any recommendations for being as self-reliant as possible and having your food storage and thing and following the Prophets Council on that as a college student? Tell me your name. Natalie. Natalie. Well, I'm, we're so thankful you would ask a question about self-reliance. That's a great way to get us started. Self-reliance is a principle of, that comes straight out of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it's, it's just helping us be independent and prepared. And so everybody's circumstances are different. In some countries, you can't store a year's supply of food. They have laws against hoarding food, and you don't have room, and you live in a, in a place where you can't. But can you put you know, a couple tablespoons of rice into a, into a pop bottle or something like that? Or can you save you know, $15 or whatever is appropriate in your situation to have a little bit of a cash reserve? So students, you have a very specific set of circumstances. But knowing what those principles are, I want to be prepared and I want to be independent. Then you can ask yourself, all right, what can I do? You know your, your exact circumstances. What can I do to follow those principles? And the answer today will be different than it'll be in 2026 or 2030 or 2050, but that's okay. You're following those principles. So I don't know if that helps you. I don't know exactly what I can say, but I love that you asked that question about self-reliance and what you can do. So thanks. Thank you. Next, over here. Tell us, tell us your name. Hi, my name is Brent. Uh, the validation that it's okay to ask questions about what we can be doing more as a church financially to help people. Obviously, like you said, there's a lot of nuance and things that we need to be doing ourselves as well. Um, but thank you for the validation. Unfortunately, it's been my experience that when I've asked that question before that I've received criticism from ecclesiastical leaders or religion professors upon asking that question. So I thank you for saying that it is a legitimate question to ask. Um, as we're striving to do more in our own personal lives as well to uplift others around us, but we can do more from a financial perspective. Good. I, I'm glad that you're asking the question, and I appreciate the, the connective tissue that you said. The church can do s certain things, but the members of the church make up the church, and so we have a lot of things to do ourselves. And we should always ask ourselves the question, is this the best use of my resource? What will have the biggest impact? Those are humanitarian questions that we ask all the time. So thank you. Let's go over here. Hi, um, my name is Kate Ellsworth, and like, so my dream is to be in like humanitarian service and humanitarian aid, and like that's what I'm working towards in my career. And I just wondered, because I noticed that you got a major in English, and then you went on to be like the director of humanitarian service for the church. And I'm just wondering like, what got you interested in being in humanitarian aid and how did you get where you're at now? Kate, I'm the poster child for how not to get my job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I studied a variety of things. I was an English major. I taught English as a second language. I worked in the federal government in Washington, D.C. I owned a small business. Those things are like ping pong balls, just bing, bing, bing. I came to the church office building on a six-month contract. I was looking uh, just to fill some time until another job that I had started. So they offered me a job, and I said, no, I'm waiting for this other job. They offered me a second job, and I thought, brilliant that I was, oh, I should pray about that. I wonder if I should quit turning down these jobs and pray about it. I had one of those experiences, strong experiences, that said, this is what I want you to do. I didn't want to work at the church office building. I wasn't going to stay in Salt Lake City. This was, this was against everything I wanted to do. And it wasn't a glamorous job. The job was as a shipping clerk helping humanitarian shipments that are stuck in customs and are accruing storage fees that I was getting, you know, try and solve those problems, get that out. That, nobody wants that job. <laughs> but I felt that Holy Ghost in me in a way that I recognized, say, this is what I want you to do. It's like, but I took the job, and 26 years later, I did those things. I didn't study the right thing, but I had some experience from those other things that I could connect in a job that worked. So I, I learned a couple things from that. Number one, pray about the jobs that you're turning down. Number two, follow that guidance. Even if it doesn't look like it's going in the direction you want, the Lord can get you where you want to go. And three, don't be afraid to take jobs that either don't look like you know, it's, it's glamorous, or you're gonna learn a lot of things by doing the unglamorous work, and it's saved me. I know enough about humanitarian projects because of the unglamorous things that I did to be able to be the director later on. So those are my three points. <laughs> Good luck, Kate. <laughs> Go ahead. Hi, my name is Alexa Franco. I am from Colombia, and my question was related to what she also asked you. Although I am studying marriage and family studies, I am about to graduate and I applied to a public administration because I also like all this stuff. Anyway, since she asked the question, and now I had another question. I have always heard about revelation. Can you tell us about, you know, how you find your revelation for yourself? Such a good question, Alexa. Everybody is so different, so I hesitate to talk about you know, that my way is the only way. But for me, I feel the Holy Ghost. It feels to me like when the furnace turns on in your house. You know how you're sitting in a room and you, it starts up? I, I notice something inside of me that is warm and, and kind of humming. And, and it, it's a, a sign to me to pay attention to this. But I often get a lot of help. A song will come into my mind or a scriptural verse will come into my mind and I'll have to ask, what are you trying to tell me with this? What is the, about this that applies to that? And then asking the question allows the spirit to teach me something new. So I love questions. I love music. I love furnaces coming on. And it's very individual the way the spirit fixes it. And I don't know how he'll speak to you, but I know that he will. Thank you. Thank you. Sister Eubank, my question is super similar. Um, I... Uh, I've been very curious about Revelation lately and how it works in our careers and our field of work. How, or do you have experiences that you can share of how you've seen Revelation in your work, more specifically your career around there? Thank you for asking this. Tell us your name. I'm Jake. Jake. Is it Jake? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for asking this question because 
in order to be working in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for my professional job or to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ, we better be asking Jake's question about how does revelation work in this? So let me give you an example of something. We did a lot of research. We we're trying to figure out what would be the most important thing that the church could do as a humanitarian uh, effort that would have the biggest impact. We looked at lots of different things, and some things like trafficking, we're not scaled to do something like that. We don't have the right scale of a church to be able to tackle that, but there are many other things that we can do. The research showed that the thing that would have the biggest impact would be to affect the well-being of children zero to five and their parents. So for all the parents in this audience, you are already doing humanitarian work. By, by helping your kids get that foundational start, you're preventing a lot of humanitarian needs later on. And you're, you are some of the greatest humanitarians because your parents, God is a parent, Abraham is a parent, Adam and Eve are parents. We took that idea to the first presidency and uh, President Nelson used his prophetic keys. He stopped, he looked down at the desk, he looked at his counselors and he said, this is the right thing to do. And it became the global priority of the church. And then he said something we weren't expecting. He said, I want the Relief Society to be in charge of this. So he charged President Johnson and her, and then all the Relief Society sisters to be the face of this global priority. So I had a first-hand view to watch President Nelson think about what was presented, the data, take a moment to pause and think through the Holy Ghost and then make a decision and then make an addition. And so I got to watch him do that. So I try to do those things in my own work, in my own life. But don't ever think that there is something that isn't worthy of revelation. Anything you care about, the Lord will reveal to you. There was a time in my career when I was burned out and I, I desperately needed a change. And so the idea I had was I'm going to take a year sabbatical. I'm going to go do something different. And my office was like, we don't think you should do that. That sounds like a terrible idea. But as I prayed about it, I could feel the Lord say to me, if this is important to you, I'll help you make it work. And I can always bring you back. That was so validating to me that the, the, the feelings that I had were important enough to the Lord that he would help me work out a sabbatical. And then he did bring me back and he helped me find a job after that. To feel that he was with me in all all things was a real revelation in my career. I hope that that's useful to you. Very, thank you. Thank you, Jake. Hi, Sister Eubanks, my name is Jace Wheeler. Um, with this last general conference, focusing on, I guess the, the leadership instruction, focusing on how to make our sacrament meetings more joyful and, and church meetings more joyful. That's now my stakes focus. So what are your thoughts on how we can make our sacrament meetings more joyful? That's a great question, Jace. What, have, what has your ward or stake decided to do already? Um, we haven't met with our ward councils yet. We, we met as a stake-wise committee and just kind of discussed it. But I, I mean, really focusing on the doctrine of Christ, obviously, is, is the main focus. Um, we talked about things such as, you know, having more speakers, like four or five with shorter, more powerful talks. Uh, just a bunch of different little things that we feel like could bring more joy to the members of our state. Well, I wish I were in your council to talk about that. <laughs> I know that sacrament meeting, I learned this in the pandemic, is basically about the two great commandments. We are there 
to love God and to show our love for God by taking the sacrament, renewing our covenant with Jesus Christ. That's the loving God part. And you can't do that on Zoom. You have to be in person to have that ordinance. So it's important to come and, and worship God on Sundays in sacrament meeting. But the other part is of the commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love our So we're there for everybody else. And we might not learn anything new in Sunday school. Or it might be that the talks were too long. Or that no, nobody, nobody did things the way we thought that they should do them. It doesn't matter. That's not, it's not to be satisfying to us. We're there to help each other grow. So we're David and Sean in those videos together. We're trying to help each other get to new places. And that's really the community that we're doing. So anything that you can think of in your council to make the feeling, the environment of, of all of us together as brothers and sisters better is great. Music, talks, hearing from voices we don't hear from otherwise. Uh, opening it up, inviting other people, being creative, following the Spirit. I think all of those things bring joy to our sacrament meeting. Thank you so much. You should invite me later. I'd love to hear what you do. <laughs> You're welcome. You can come anytime. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, my name is Jay Hathaway. I, I have a bit of a complicated question, so I want to describe a part of it. I grew up in a very poor family, married a wife that came from a wealthier family. Um, my kids all know my wife's side of the family because her parents can pay for us all to go to trips or hang out, and so all their cousins know each other. On my side of the family, I have 12 brothers and sisters, and they probably couldn't even name three of their cousins at some level, right? I got a chance to go to Africa this last summer, and I made friends because I got a chance to go there. And so I'm, there's, so the question's about kind of money. We can do relationships in our local spaces without money. But when we need American members to experience Africa or even Africans to come here and experience this, how do you see a potentially, there's a money part that I'm trying to work out in my head to get those two communities to be socially friends as opposed to just knowing about each other. Does that question make sense? I think so. What have you learned already about what, what is important? I think you have to physically be with each other to really build intimate relationships and to understand things. And so when my wife's you know, parents pay for this, the cousins become friends because they hit each other once in a while and they then cry and then <laughs> they love each other after. And that, in a very short case, happened in Africa where I was there where I could hear them like, wow. These guys think like I do. I thought they didn't, but they do. And we can solve a problem together, but I don't think I'm ever gonna get that over Zoom or from a PowerPoint slide. And so I'm trying to figure out how we can build, I think we have to spend money to build those relationships and I'm, that's, I don't know. Did I answer your question? I think I did. Well, it started. I, it's an interesting uh, definition you have about those cousins having a good relationship when they hit each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I'm just teasing. What you said is the principle. We build progress and understanding relationships face-to-face. -face. We can do some things if a relationship's already been established virtually, but for progress to be made, we need to be sitting with each other, talking, sharing food. You know, All of those kinds of things are critical and important. Sometimes it takes money to do those, but I think we're, we should be more imaginative about the ways that we can create that that isn't costing a lot. You went to Africa and you had a great example, but you don't have to go to Africa to interact with poverty. There's poverty 
in Idaho, there's poverty in other yeah, places. It's not, it's not Africa poverty. This is a different thing. I, I just, there is no way I can dance in anywhere in Rexburg and understand, like, I just never would have known unless I sat there and went, you don't even, like, there is no job. And we can imagine these things, but there's, I don't know. So I would love to hear your, like, low-cost idea, because this is the thing I can't get through my head. How do I help my friends here go, I should give money to these things to help. I should actually spend my time to do this without them have, having that intimate relationship. So uh, do you have an I guess this is the question. Is there, is there a low-cost way that you think could pull that off where we actually build enduring relationships with somebody at a distance outside of our community? I won't know the answer to that. It's a, it's a question you should not abandon. I think you should uh, ask that in a spiritual way and see if doors don't open. But I think you have an interesting opportunity in your family. You have a set of cousins that you don't know very well and you want your kids to know that. Now, I don't know where they live, but they can't all live far away. And maybe there are other opportunities to build those relationships with those cousins that will last for a long, long time in your family. So there, there may be some opportunities in those ways to build. Okay. It takes resource. It, it absolutely takes resource. I'm not trying to say you can do this work without any kind of money and resource, but it's not the most important thing. And if we focus on the important things, I believe the Lord opens the doors for the other things. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Sister Eubank. Tell me your name. My name is Mikkel Weiniger. Nice, nice to meet you. And thank you again for your preparation and the things that you have shared. It has really touched me and I've felt the spirit and I'm sure many of you have too. Um, but I come to ask a simple question. I've been pondering a lot about this because I knew that I've, I have a dream to help people and I know I can help people anywhere I go, but I'd love to work with humanitarians. And I also have a love for science and the STEM. And I was wondering if there's like a way that you, from your perspective and your experiences, know of um, how STEM and science can come together with humanitarians to help people in need, and if there's any internship opportunities that you recommend. Thank you, Mikkel, for tuning your brain into these great scientific endeavors and making yourself you know, full of expertise that you can help. I, I believe you'll be used in a lot of different ways. When I look back at progress that's made through medicine, through farming techniques, all of those come through scientific uh, observations and scientific discoveries to increase yield, to increase health, to open up access. And so I don't know what field that you are studying, but, but all of those things have an application. And I believe sometimes we come to the Lord and say, what do you want me to do? And I think what he wants is for us to say, this is what I want to do, will you help me? That, that principle of the brother of Jared, you know, I don't think the Lord cared that he came up with the idea of 16 stones, will you touch them with your finger? What the most important part of that story is that he's coming down off the mountain and his arms are full of these 16 stones that glow and he knows that the Lord honored the idea that he had. So you have ideas about ways you can combine science and humanitarian work and things that are in your heart that maybe nobody else knows about, take that to the Lord. Ask him to open up a door for you so you can do the things you want to do. Touch it with your finger and I'll, I'll do the work. I'll molten the stones. I hope you have that chance. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
Hi, Sister Eubank. Um, I loved your uh, talk and everything. Um, oh, I'm Caleb. Um, I'm Caleb. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my question is, what is the best way to get started on the Just Serve app between like uh, work and class and uh, social things? And um, maybe it's just like an excuse um, not getting started. But how do you like find the time to carve out to serve with you know just you or your roommates or you know how would you get started? Okay, I have an idea. Whomever you minister to, invite them, choose something on the app, go do it, and now you're ministering and your just service done. Hmm. Yeah. This is, the, this is the genius of my life. Try stacking things so that you're doing five things at the same time. Inviting friends, be with your family, but, but include other people in that so that you're doing more than one thing at a time. That's the only way I know to make my life work because otherwise there's not enough time. All right, thank you. Good job. Hi, so my name is Kimia Jensen, and first of all, thank you for coming here. I really enjoyed it. Uh, my question, so I want to go on a humanitarian trip with you this summer, but also for later in life and after graduating and stuff. What organizations and places would you recommend focusing on for that kind of thing? Are you asking about which places that people should go for a humanitarian trip? Kind of, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, I'm trying to explore like different organizations or places, yeah, for a humanitarian trip. Okay. If you're interested in, in humanitarian work and you're looking at a partner, th these are the kinds of things that we look at when we look at a partner. I want to know how long have they been doing the work that they're doing? How do they get their funding? How do they report back to the donors who gave the funding about what they're doing? What's the impact that they've done? Let's look at some of their old projects and see how did that work out and, and get to know them. And so a trip is a good way to get to know them. You can you do a little bit of work with them. And, but those questions are the, 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 they aren't surprising to people. Those are the average questions that everybody in the humanitarian world is, is asking for. And it's the things that you absolutely should ask. So don't be afraid to ask those questions, and good humanitarian organizations should be very willing to offer up the answers to those things. And then you can make an informed decision about the people you want to work with and the places you want to go. All right, thank you. Hi, Sister Yupank. My name is Nyasha Rukanza Kanza. Thank you for... And by the way, he's one of our star students. I love to meet a star student. <laughs> um, Where are you from? I'm from Zimbabwe. You're from Zimbabwe. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Um, thank you for your presentation on trees and the hidden ecosystems and how that relates to us in, in our journey. And relating to that, I was looking at, at your career and the multitude of experiences that you've had. And I was wondering which uh, career choice or experience influenced you the most? And how do you feel that it prepared you to serve in the capacity in which you are working now? And there's a follow-up question as to what advice would you give to someone who is also interested in uh, pursuing the same career interests? That's a very good question. Maybe I'll just start off by telling a story. I was in Lagos, Nigeria, and I got a phone call 
uh, saying a student wanted to come meet with me, and he was coming from the other side of, of Lagos, so he was, he was two hours away, and would I wait? So he came to me and he said, Sister Eubank, I want to go to BYU-Idaho. And I said, Victor, you have no idea how cold BYU-Idaho is going to be. <laughs> I said, stay here, get your computer degree, and then you can think about what to do. And he, he, he thanked me. Like three months later, I get a call from Victor. I'm in Idaho. I made it. <laughs> and, and my advice to him was, you know, try and get your education here. It's very difficult to get the visa. It's very difficult to get a sponsorship, all of that. But Victor did not care about that. He came to BYU-Idaho. He became the student body vice president. He went to an internship. He, he, he did everything on campus. And I followed Victor. He went to California. He got a master's degree. He married a woman that he met in California. And then he started working for a company. And then he started working for the church. Victor's now in charge of all the temples in Africa. He works for the, for the physical facilities part of the church on all of the, the temples that we're building in Africa. And what if I had given him terrible advice? I gave him terrible advice. I said, stay in Lagos. But he knew enough about what he wanted that he would not accept that answer. And then he fulfilled what he should do. Now, you have a story. However you got from Zimbabwe to BYU-Idaho is a fantastic story. The things that are important in my life, I don't dare recommend them to you. I don't know if they're right for you. But you know what's right for you. And the Lord's already been leading you along. But what I can tell you is, it's the small, quiet things that you don't think are going to be important that turn out to be the most important things of all. And so for me, I was glad that I met Victor in Lagos. It turned out to be a blessing for me. He doesn't need to know me, but I need to know Victor. Those are the most important things. I hope that you will write them down, that you will keep a journal or a record for your children and your grandchildren so that they'll know the lessons of your life because they'll be more important to them than anything I would ever say. Okay, amen. Thank you. Good luck. Well done being a star student. <laughs> Hello, um, my name is Emily Hobson. Um, I loved your comments about the temple and ministering. Um, recently, those two things have been a focus of my life. Um, and I don't feel like I've ever caught the vision of ministering until like the past month. Uh, my roommate is our Ward Relief Society president and I remember a comment I heard from uh, Elder and Sister Bednar one time. They were like, I just asked my ministers how they'd like to be ministered to. And I kind of focused on my own talents. Um, I really love to cook and bake. And so I just brought food to my ministers one time and I've come to love them and become friends with them. And um, I guess my question to you is, um, how do I help others recognize how they can use their talents and like you said, your creativity and listen to the spirit and have it guide them and how to be better ministers because I really feel like ministering has changed my life and it's helped helped me serve, but also I felt loved and served in return. So what a great question, Emily. I wish everybody would ask about ministering. It's such a good question. I tried in the talk to link things that I think go together. Temple covenants, humanitarian and ministering are all exactly the same thing. We call them different words, we have different feelings about the way they are, but they are essentially the same work. 
and you hit on something that I think is important. People say, I don't know how to minister. They changed the program. It's not visiting teaching or home teaching, and I don't know what to do. You don't need to know what to do. All you have to do is sit down in person with the person that you are ministering to and say, what do you want? What do you need? Tell me about you. How can I be a support to you? And then just do that. That's the only thing that you have to do. It's the secret for humanitarian work, and it's the secret for temple work. What do you want? It's what the Lord asks us. He turns around to, to Andrew and John, and he says, what seekest thou? <laughs> Why are you following me? What can I do for you? And that's the great ministering question. And then you can use your talents, the way you said, to then help them meet their need. The woman that I ministered to, she said, look, I don't want you to, I don't want lessons. I just want to go bike riding. That's what I like. I'm trying to lose weight. Will you please bike ride with me? Okay, I'm on it. We went bike riding. <laughs> but, but bonded us. We still stay in touch 10 years later. So find the thing that will bond. Thanks, Emily. And I'd love to be part of your recipe group. Thank you. Please. <laughs> go ahead. I'm just curious about the process that you went through in creating the cooperation with the World Food Program. That's all. I'm just curious about the process. It's a really great question. There are, in the same self-reliance principles, the church wants to do the things that we're scaled to do, and we want to be independent, and we want to have a reserve. And so we don't want to depend too carefully on all of our partners. President Nelson has asked us, please reserve our independence. But it is a truth in this world that there are places that we cannot go. And there are, there are multilateral organizations like the World Food Program that have a system that is a global system that we can participate in and activate in. So we went to the World Food Program. We said, we're interested in doing these kinds of things. We're not interested in doing these kinds of things. They all belong to your portfolio. And they said, we desire to have better relationships with faith-based organizations. We would love to work with you. So we started doing some work together. So some of that is in helping in emergencies with people who don't have any food, mostly because of conflict. They have the trucks. They have the, the shipping. They have the ability to get physical food into place war-torn places where we don't have any members of the church. And that's what really started it. But now we're able to talk to them about, can we work together to solve food deserts or to, serve, to solve food issues around different things? We want people to be educated about the issues around food and why children are malnourished and what kinds of food it would take so that little kids would not have their brains not develop. So they're interested in helping us with, with expertise and education. And they're very energized about our volunteers to be able to work in some of these things and, and, and our convening power to bring other people who are interested, other faith groups interested in working on food issues. So those were the issues around it. It's not, it's not, we don't aspire to everything that the World Food Program or any other UN agency says, but they do things that no one else does, and we want to be able to take advantage of that leverage. Cool, thanks. I'm going to use it in class. Well, there you go. <laughs> Hopefully it's more succinct than I was. Hello, my name is Jaron Yek. Um, lately, I've been going to the temple with quite a few of the, the mission buddies. Um, my question is kind of involving everything, uh, but it's the humanitarian efforts on the other side. Mm. Uh, for going through the temple and time management and school. So I'm, I'm kind of bringing it back to the school basis. Um, what do you find effective 
when organizing your schedule to incorporate church activities, the temple, because uh, lately I've been spending a lot of time in the temple, but I feel like my homework is, is building up. I don't have anxiety and those kind of things because of the temple, and it's, it's been really great in my life, but I feel like my pile is continuing to build. So my question would be more for you of, of how you've seen the temple bless your life in organization of your day, um, your family, just kind of that. First of all, Jaron, thank you for going to the temple with your mission friends in the middle of school. That's a really great example. I love that you're doing that. I, I'm glad that you're incorporating the temple into your regular life. I think it helps with study. I think it helps with decision-making, all of those things. You're asking the question, how do I balance my time? It's the eternal question for everybody, and we're all trying to figure out how to do this. I don't have good advice. My, I sometimes get out of whack in my own balancing of my time. But what I can tell you is, President Nelson said, go to the temple as often as you can. And for me, in my earlier life, when I was a student, that was that was once a week. I could, I could make it work early on a Friday morning. I could go before my Friday morning class. Then there were periods in my life when I could not do that. I was trying to go maybe once a month. I didn't live as close to a temple. It was far harder away. Now I try to go as often as I can. I travel, and some weeks I'm here, and I can go more often than I can't. You have to do, and you're going to sense it in your heart about what's right for you. You're the barometer, and so you're going to know. But President Nelson says, don't just put it off and go when it's convenient. Schedule it. Make an appointment with the Lord and show him that you'll sacrifice because this is as important to you. And you're doing that. You're arranging to go with your friends from your mission, and you're in the temple as much as possible. Now, you have to work on your homework, and you have callings. You have other things. You've got to balance that. But you're showing the Lord you're my priority. I'm here because I care about humanitarian work for people on the other side. And he'll honor that, and he'll open up more opportunities for you, too. Thank you. Have you had experiences in the temple that have helped you in your efforts in the world? The temple is the most important aspect in my life. I cannot believe that we are fortunate enough to live in a time when temples are right out there, right out on that street. And so I'll often take a, a thorny problem that I'm wrestling with and take it to the Lord. And sometimes I get an answer right away. And other times I'll spend weeks thinking about it, but I always find something. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So my name is Dylan Dorchy, and I have like both a comment and a question. And like you said on your um, presentation, thank you so much for that. When it comes to the whole um, uh, trees connected to each other, uh, helping out with the nutrients and the communication. And that easily reminds me of what I tell myself all the time. And I have the tendency to mix um, church teachings with content made by Disney. Like for example, um, the song, We Are One from the Lion King to Simba's Pride, as well as um, President Henry B. Eyring in the April 2013 session entitled, We Are One. And in one of the quotes said, and a quote, and a, 
And again, I say unto you, I give unto you a commandment that every man, both elder, priest, teacher, and also member go with his might, with the labor of his hands to prepare and accomplish the things which I have commanded. And as uh, if I recall correctly, like you said in your presentation, is that the trees are working together and all, and so all, and so we are all two. And as I like to say that we are all one. And the question I have is, may I ask for your version of what I just explained? And may I quote you? <laughs> <laughs> you could quote me, but you should quote yourself. You just gave it a very eloquent stance about that. Touche. <laughs> you have a superpower, Dylan, because you can take a body of knowledge that's some kind of Disney music and you can have scriptures and you can make the, you can see the connection between those things. That's a superpower. We can all see the connection of stuff that looks alike, but it's a beautiful gift, a spiritual gift, when you're able to connect things that don't look alike into that. It's what I tried to do in my talk today. I don't know if I was successful, but thank you for thinking that it was. Yeah, and thank you so much. Thank you. Let's take two more, one from each uh, side. Hi, Sister Yubeng. Uh, my name is Levan Tatsutor, and I actually had two questions, but may maybe it will count as one. Uh, so the first one, you, you talked a lot about uh, connections and the importance of it, and I feel like there's a great, and you know, it's my experience as well, there's a great uh, inequality in the church, within the church, and I'm not talking about it financially, but mainly in terms of social connections. So I grew up in the church, but I'm from a country uh, in Europe where the church is really small. We have one stake in the whole country, and, and I know that the surrounding countries are in a similar situation. And, and I always felt like, as a YSA or as a young man there, uh, that kind of, I was really isolated uh, from my peers because of my religion mm -hmm. and from those who uh, follow my religion by a gap of ocean. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't really feel like uh, that there is a solution for us feeling so isolated. So I know that so many of those people either left the church or, or you know, they, uh, couldn't get m married in the temple or things like that because it's like really a small uh, community and and uh, <coughs> and I feel like my only solution that I made and finally I came to this conclusion is to coming here to uh, America uh, but at, at the moment I don't know what else I could could have done and and I'm just wondering if the church has any kind of or if the church is praying for some kind of inspired uh, solution for us who are in this uh, similar situation. So I, I had to, I left medical school behind because uh, I felt like I was so disconnected from other Latter-day Saints in that country where the church is so undeveloped and, and alone you can't make such a big difference that, okay, I will put the effort in and now it will change. It will not change in my generation's time. Um, so this is the first question. If the church leaders have been praying about some kind of solution to solve this issue because this is a really big issue uh, and, and it concerns the future of the church as well in those countries. Uh, the, the second question that I had, and I have been thinking about this since my mission, uh, to like sometimes I had the thought that I would love to serve another mission. Why is it that m men are not allowed to serve more than one missions? Uh, I know that women are allowed to but uh, 
Why is that limitation? I know that in the past or at the beginning of the church, it was different. Uh, men served multiple missions or they served for like sometimes many years or even decades. Uh, why is it different now? A lot of questions. Yeah. Thank you for ask, asking them. I appreciate you sharing your experience and the isolation and what you described is absolutely true. I read yesterday when they proposed BYU Pathway, when Pathway became, President Holland said, this is the answer to something that has bothered me about the inequality in the church for many years. So that gives me a little clue into President Holland. He's worried about inequality for chances for learning, for chances to, to socialize with other Latter-day Saints, for those kinds of things. So it is on the minds of the, of the large councils of the church. And they're proposing things like pathway. They're trying to reduce, using technology and the, and the gifts that are in the world right now, the isolation that so many members of the church feel. Because they, just like you, they want to be connected. And you had to give up an opportunity to select a different opportunity to come where members of the church are. I know that there are compensatory blessings, that the Lord sees the choice that you made. He knows where you were, and he will compensate you in your life as long as you'll stay faithful to him so that those things are made up for you. But you still had to make that choice. And I don't know if we can fully mitigate the, the isolation of where people live and the circumstances they are born in. And I don't know that anything in this life will fully make up for that. But over time, we will. You've made an inspired choice, and the Lord will honor you for that choice. I hope, I know that something else in the minds of the brethren, they don't want to export American culture into the rest of the globe of the church. They want to honor the cultures where people live as long as we keep the gospel principles in our heart. And maybe that's something President Meredith can talk about or, or others as well. Would you have any comment you want to add? Then we'll just... What was your second question? Yeah, about the mission. Why is it that men are not allowed to serve multiple missions while I know that women are? You come and ask President Meredith. He's going to answer that okay. question for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Final question. I'm glad I got in line when I did. Um, I have actually a couple questions. Sorry, I'm cheating the system. But... Uh, First, my name's Emma, and I'm very grateful that you're here to answer some of our questions today. Um, I have been blessed to be close enough to the Spirit to know what direction, at least for now, that God is having me lead my life, and that is in agriculture and humanitarian work. And I just had some questions surrounding that. Um, but what kind of programs are in place I'm just going to read the agriculture ones, and then I have a separate one after that, sorry. Um, what kind of programs are in place to help with um, hunger in third world countries, specifically like helping agriculturally and um, teaching people how to grow their own food? And what country would you say is the most in need in that regard? Thanks for asking that, and thanks for studying that. As, as I talked earlier, we have an emergency food program that's very robust to help people in their need, but that's a short-term Band-Aid solution. They will always depend on the handouts. If we don't 
turn around and work with smallhold farmers. So a lot of our portfolio in humanitarian is trying to help smallhold farmers figure out the right inputs, the right seeds, the right fertilizer, and then get their crops to market so that they, they can feed their own families and they have a cash crop, so that they have some resiliency. To me, that's the way to solve the root problem of we don't you know, we can't eat, we don't have anything to eat today. So we work with a lot of great partners, IDE, Catholic Relief Services, Helen Keller International, on how to help these farmers get the inputs they need. I don't know the opportunities in which country. Uh, there are so many countries where huge gains have been made because of the church projects that we've done there. But I'm really encouraged by what we're seeing. That's awesome. Um, Follow-up question to that. Uh, is there any programs in place where, like, community gardens are being in implemented? Yeah. You could see in some of the, thi the things that I said, you know, grow something from a seed and grow a garden and share your produce. We're, we're trying to go back to those bedrock principles that we used to follow in the Intermountain West. They're good for everybody. So a lot of our projects are around parents starting a, a garden around the elementary school, using the produce to, to serve the lunch at the school, and then the families can share that produce around there. We feel like there's a great opportunity around school lunch gardens uh, and, and, and other things too. Very cool. Okay, Thanks. last thing, sorry. Um, how have you dealt, or have you ever had like a glimpse into your future and seen just a little bit of your purpose and been completely overwhelmed by it? Um, in other words, have you dealt with imposter syndrome and and how do you overcome that? I'm dealing with it this very moment. I don't know why people think that I would have an answer to the questions that you have. <laughs> I, I think for so many of us, we feel overwhelmed and we feel like, I, I know I'm not the expert and, and you know, I'm at the end of my middle age and I still feel this imposter syndrome. I don't feel credible, but I know the Lord has invested in me. He's given me experiences and I don't think I'm great in any way, but I'm gonna share his investment with other people. And I'm an essentially shy person. It's very difficult for me to stand up and take the questions that you have. I hope that there's some kernel of it that made help to you. Don't lose your confidence. You should have confidence that the Lord has chosen you and you can do other things. You can be humble, but don't ever not be on his errand. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for coming and asking the questions and being the people you are. Thank you, Sister Eubank. You've been so kind to spend this time with us. And brothers and sisters, thanks for bringing your spirit with you and your questions. It's been a delightful time we've had and wish you a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you again.